0: We're going to be reading this morning from 1 John. We're continuing our series on 1 John. Um, 1 John 5 or 1, 5 through 10. Let me get this stuff ready. Hear these words. This is the message you have heard from the from him and declared to you. God is light. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're continuing this series um, on the book of 1 John. John. and it's, these books were written by John. Um, and uh, this is one of those um, things I feel a lot of times... John is kind of given this really, like, loving, we, like, think of as this, like, loving, really pastoral person who is, like, who would come up and give you a hug and tell tell you everything's okay, and we get that, in you know, really clearly in other passage in other books, like 2 John and third John, about, you know, like, the type of pastor he seems to be, and it, it's it kind of in this stark contrast to, to Paul, who's kind of this, you know, like, in-your-face kind of guy, or Peter, who's maybe the, like, super Academic one. But this passage in particular kind of goes against that. John is kind of, he's calling people out, he's telling them what it is. And it's helpful for us to learn the context of which this sermon was written, right? So 1 John, it's not, you know, like Paul's letters where he was writing this letter to these churches. It's really probably more like a written sermon that could have been read in these churches. And so um, from what we know, John, after, you know, being a disciple all these things, he moves, uh, he starts a church planting network, a church planting uh, group in probably the city of Ephesus in modern day Turkey and he's planting he's got probably a number of house churches and he's kind of like the lead pastor in this group and this area Ephesus we read about it in other parts of the Bible right in with with Paul's gospels and the book of or Ephes- er, Paul's letters the book of Ephesians Ephesus was this really multicultural city. It was a city where you had people from all over the Roman world coming there. So you had, of course, you had some Jewish people, you had Greeks, you had Romans, you had uh, Africans, you had all sorts of people coming together. And so John has started these house churches and they're attracting people from all over the Roman world, super diverse churches where not everyone looked alike, probably not everyone spoke the same language immediately, there was probably some translation issues, people ate different food, people had different values, cultural values, and people also had different ideas of what wisdom was, what truth was. Right? There would have been a few good Jewish people there who had a good knowledge of the Old Testament, and they probably felt, you know, we get this Christian thing better than these other people because we have been taught well as children. We are, right? Because we're Jewish. We're God's special people. But at the same time, you have... Greek people coming into these churches with some of their ideas about wisdom and, and knowledge. And so we, from what we know, the little we know about the context of this letter, this sermon, is that there was an issue with a group of characters who were bringing in some of their Greek wisdom mindset into the church. and Another big word. We sometimes call them the Gnostics, Gnosticism. And they had this idea that John preaches against that, you know, God is spirit, right? God's just spiritual. So God really doesn't care about our bodies. All that really matters is that we are attentive to our souls and our minds, the things that will last forever. So it really doesn't matter what you do with your body. It really, like sin, isn't that big of a deal. What's important is your spiritual life. That's the only important thing. What you do during the week isn't all that big of a deal, as long as you're doing as much as you need to to uh, make sure that your spiritual life is intact and is going well. And some of them were taking this claim to such an extreme that they would even claim, you know what? I actually don't even sin anymore, right? I have gotten, I've done such a good job of cultivating my own spiritual life that I am not even a sinner anymore. I never slip up. I, or some, or going as far as claim, I am completely sin free. And Pastor John, as he's writing, he's like, no, 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 no. I know none of you are sin-free. I know what you do on the weekend. You are not sinless. And by the way, if you claim to be, you're making God a liar, so therefore, that's a sin. See, sinner. That's what John's saying. He's, he's reminding us that anybody who claims to be sin-free or doesn't have much or anything to ask forgiveness for is not someone to be trusted. And so, in the context of all that's going on in John's church, there's some confusion about what this means. Um, people are looking down on each other because they're like, "Oh, that person is struggling with sin. How you know they're they're not a good Christian person. They're not enlightened in the way they should be." And so, all the, this church, there are these people who just. It's like that their, their, their glasses are all fogged up and they can't see what's going on. But Pastor John sees that there is still deep sinfulness in the lives of some of the people in this church. Oftentimes, we have this view of the early church that we, have, we think that they just were perfect that the early church just did such a good job of being church. And we have this mentality, if only we would be able to go back to the way they did things then, if only we could be of the church like them. And then you read passages like this, and you're like, and which I always like, and be like, oh, wait, the early church is just like the modern church, in the fact that they don't really do a good job at being a church, right? When we when we read this passage, when we read and we learn the context of it, it reminds us that the church has always been doing a poor job. Has always been messing up. Has always had conflict and people who think they're better than others. There's always been division from the very beginning, right? Maybe we read in Acts that the church was, you know sharing their wealth, and they were, like, living perfectly and all this stuff. But then when you read the letters, you realize, oh, wait, that's not the whole picture of what the early church was like. And it's clear that this early church, one of the issues they had was taking sin seriously. They weren't taking sin seriously, as seriously as they should. And there are still plenty of Christian traditions, plenty of church traditions, that they emphasize different things about sinfulness. Some of them emphasize it really, really strongly. Others, not as much. And, you know, there's, 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 there's good and bad things for, on both those sides. And traditionally, our church, our Reformed church, we've been one of those churches that really hammers down, we really hammer home sinfulness, that we are sinful fallen people. There was an old pastor in the uh, CRC, his name's Lewis Smeads. he was also an author, and he, he would write, uh, someone who takes sin seriously can't be all that bad, right? And I just like that word, because we as a tradition, we take sin seriously. We have that fun term, total depravity, right? That sin affects everything in the world. Not that everything's as bad as it could be, but sin affects every little thing. So if there's any church tradition who understands the seriousness of our sin, it would be us, right? We know better, and we take sin super seriously. And now, I will say, I don't think anyone in our church, anyone at Park Lane, would be one to claim that they no longer sin, that they're sin-free people. I think we got that at least covered. But how many times do we maybe downplay our own sinfulness, or we try to hide our sinfulness to other people, we don't want to own up to it, or we don't think about how maybe our actions are affecting others in sinful ways, or how we could possibly be not realizing certain sins. And so how dare I be asked to confess something that I didn't specifically do? Because surely if anybody understands sinfulness, it's us. The people who coined the term total depravity. But here's the thing. Even when we understand our own sinfulness, even when we take this, the issue seriously, we have, to remind, we have to remind ourselves what John says, that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God is light. And God has a 0% tolerance when it comes to sin, even the smallest sins, even the slightest slip-ups, even the inadvertent, unrealized ones that you didn't even know you committed, that is a goes against who God is. It goes against light. It goes against his very being. There is no possibility of sin and God coexisting It sounds overwhelming because it kind of is to think that even the smallest little sins that I do, even those small little things that aren't that big of a deal go against and are affront to God's nature. Yeah, it is. It's overwhelming. It's like trying to like being a person in the world is like wearing, trying to wear, keep your white t-shirt clean and walking through an active coal mine. Good luck. It's not going to happen. Just by being in this world, sin and evil is going to stick to us, and it's going to affect us, and it's going to bring us down, no matter how hard we try, no matter what we do. There's nothing that we can do about our own sin and sinfulness. So I'm glad that we're all on the same page about the seriousness of sin. We're not like the church in Ephesus in, in 1 John. We understand our sinfulness. And of course, there are people there who are, who are claiming that, you know, sin doesn't affect me, John, John. I know you're talking about how big of a deal it is, but come on. Like, we know that God just cares about our spiritual life, it's not that big of a deal about what we do. God loves us, and as long as we, you know, do do our best, um, as long as we just come to church and read our Bibles and pray, that's good enough, right? To which John says, no, it's not. It's not. Because there's no such thing as sin and God coexisting. Because God is light. And when God's light shines on us, when it shines on us, there's no hiding anymore our sinfulness, the things we've done wrong. It's like when you're, when you're putting on clothes in the early morning, and it's kind of dark outside, and you're like, yeah, this looks good. And, you, and then once the sun comes up or you get in a well-lit room, you realize, oh, there's a big stain on it. I didn't see that. Because God, God is like that. God's light shines on us to reveal our sinfulness. There's no hiding in pretending In the light of God. All of the ways that we as Christians, we try to present ourselves as these presentable people, all that goes away when God's light shines on us. Doesn't sound all that comforting, but I want to argue that it is comforting. It's comforting to know that there's no pretense, there's no hiding, there's no way that we can hide our sinfulness before God. Uh, I, I, I do like a lot of... Um I, I I use I don't watch a lot of them anymore, but I li- I liked those good cop shows, the dramas, you know, anything that, like Law and Order, those types, those were those were great. And you always get the same image because it's a very vivid thing. You get the interrogation room with the suspects sitting down, and you got the probably the good cop and the bad cop. They got they know their parts, and they're kind of rehearsing it, and they're doing their thing. And it always is in a very dimly lit room with the one single bright light in the middle, right? And you get the cop who's kind of interrogating. Sometimes they'll even, like, push the light on them, trying to get them to confess to what they've done, right? And in a lot of ways, John's passage, it kind of feels like that, that God's this interrogator, like, hey, like, I know what you did, pointing his light on us to to prove that we're guilty. But here's the thing. It's not what God's doing. Because the one who's interrogating us, whose light is shining on us to reveal our sinfulness, is the same one who offers his life to cleanse us of our sin, who pours his blood out on us in order to purify us and to wash away our sinfulness. You see, because Christ forgives us of our sins. When we come before God and that light is shone is shown on us and we realize that, oh, we're not perfect people. That, oh, I can't hide from him the things that I did this week. Or, oh, I didn't even realize that was something that was an issue in my life. I didn't realize that was something that our church did wrong that we need to confess. Even when, when we come before God, and Christ, and we're, that light is, shi- is shining on us. It's that same light who calls us closer to confess our sins, to pour, to pour out his blood on us and to make us new and to make us clean again. And so that even when we sin again, John, go, John says this in, in chapter 2, that even we're going to sin again, it's going to happen. It's still a sinful world out there the white t-shirt's going to get dirty again, even when we sin again, Jesus is still advocating for us. Jesus is still there to pour out his blood for us. And so now, it's really, it's really nice to be able to think about that, but I think what John what he wants his church, and an extension, our church to think about, is how do we make this practical? How do we make it so that this idea of taking sin seriously changes our lives, how we live every day? Well, I think what John is doing here is he's highlighting the importance of confession. That we confess, when we confess our sins before Christ, that he will forgive those. And how we need to make that a regular rhythm in our lives. I don't know what the early church, what their order of worship was like. Maybe they did have some sort of like weekly confession time. But that's the reason that when we worship, we always have a time of confession. That when we come before God and, his, and we're in his light, we realize we're not perfect and we need to confess those things to him because guess what? Whether or not we confess it, he knows about them. And so when we do that, we always hear the words of assurance that Christ has set us free, that Christ purifies us and makes us righteousness. He says blood covers us so that we are righteous as well. But I think there's even more than just coming and confessing formally at church on Sundays. I think that what John is calling his people, calling his church, is to consider confession as a way that we live our life. That we could consider our life to be lives of confession to one another, being honest with ourselves about our own sinfulness, rather than quick quick jumping to defend ourselves, like, oh no, but I'm a pretty good person. Now, I don't think we need to consider ourselves awful people. I think there's a problem with that too, but to be honest that we're imperfect, that without Christ, we're pretty, we're not good people, and so that we would be willing to walk humbly in the world, a world that is often very quick to call out the things that Christian people have done wrong, that we wouldn't try to immediately defend Christianity and say, well, no, 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 and instead say, yeah, actually you are right. We have done some pretty bad things in the name of Christ. That we would consider being open and vulnerable as we go in this world with ourselves, but also with those around us. And and hope that they would offer the same vulnerability. That we would even consider, mind-blowing idea, actually confessing our sins to one another that we would take time when we've wronged someone or when we've done something wrong to share it with someone else. See, they do that in the Roman Catholic Church, right? They have formal confession. And, you know, our church tradition, we got rid of that 500 years ago. And I think that there's there's some good reasons to have gotten rid of it. I don't think we need to every week go before a pastor in order to feel forgiven. But have we thrown the baby out with the bathwater? do we ever actually confess our sins to one another? Because I remember a professor of mine in college said, you know, on judgment day, everyone's gonna hear your sins anyway. You may as well start now. What does it mean to walk in the light? Well, John says it. He says it in verse seven, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. What it means to live a life of confession is to be daily reminded of our need for Christ, that his blood is poured uh, out on us so that we would be pure, but it would also mean to be in fellowship with one another, living lives where we're able to be open and vulnerable and humble and even willing to confess to each other. That we would be willing to confess our sins to one another, to be forgiven, to be corrected. And so, as we think about it for this week, thinking of ways how we can live lives of confession, to be reminded of what Christ does for us. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Lord, we know that we don't... We don't live the ways that we should. We don't always walk in light, but we would like to walk in the light, Lord. Help us to continue to find ways where we can confess to you, we can live our life, life of confession, and that we would continue to be, to be willing to grow in the relationships that you have placed us in, in this church, in our families, Lord, because we know that to be people who confess, to live lives of confession means to be in fellowship with one another, Lord. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us, that you set us free from sin and evil, but that you've brought us into your family as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.